Good morning, church. Hey, my name is Tierra Perry, and my husband and I just joined Christ Central back in April, and we are so, so happy to be here. Woo! Woo, yeah! All right, so um, today we are going to re- be reading Sam- 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 17, and verses 26 through 27. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba? the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to to him, David asked Joab how he was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, um, Christ Central Church. Good morning, friends. Good morning, 
family. Good morning to those at home or wherever you're watching um, the worship service if you're doing so on, um, online. Um, this has been an interesting week to say the least. And um, I know some friends, pastoral friends of mine, we talked about, hey, let's all preach the same passage. Let's talk about um, some of the brokenness um, that is already in our country and kind of came to the surface um, in extreme fashion um, this week. And uh, last week we talked about what if 2021 wasn't much better than 2020, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, you kind of say those things anecdotally to kind of prepare you for things, but I didn't expect it to quite um, be what it turned out to be. Um, and um, I, I was a little surprised. Um, but when I looked at our passage today in Samuel, uh, let me start off by saying a lot of times this passage has been preached and it's just, um, uh, for lack of a better term, it's, it's, it's sexualized, it's genderized, where it's about a man and a woman and, 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 and the, sin of, the, the sexual sin involved here. And that seems oftentimes to be as far as it goes. But in, in light of what we see going on um, in this country, in our personal lives, um, this is a much broader issue happening in this passage. And I think we can gain application um, from it, from the Word of God. Um, the regular reading of the Word of God. The next chapter in the book we're going to, um, going through, rather. Um, I am pleased to say the Lord knows um, um, that we need to hear his word. He knew that we, he needed to speak to us and he has throughout, through his scripture. Um, so as we continue in our journey through Samuel, um, we now are able to go behind the closed doors and into the personal life of King David. David. And last time, um, the Davidic covenant, we saw God promise promised to build the house of David and in that grow and spread his kingdom and spread his kingdom agenda through David and, and through Israel, the nation um, of people that King David was leading. And after much time, we've skipped some chapters, uh, four different chapters and four chapters. And, and after much time of, of prosperity, of winning wars and spreading the kingdom and securing the boundaries and basic dynasty building, things start to go sideways in these middle and ending chapters of this book. We see a David in those around him who should say no, but can't say no. Should say no and can't say no. To sin it's injustice, it's oppression, and it's intimate destruction, right? What I want us to see is like David in our passage, God has called us to be his. Whether we've affirmed that in coming to faith and being believers, God has called us, you, to be his. Which means three things as we explore how turning from the Lord hurts us and others and and hurts the God who loves us. There's three things. First, 
from this passage, we see we must recognize that the Lord calls us to a devoted life. Secondly, the Lord calls us to spaces and places of power. And finally, the Lord calls us to himself. Calls us to a devoted life. Calls us to spaces of power. And calls us to himself. Our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a theological document written almost 375 years ago by Christians to to unify and declare what they believed and we continue to believe. They have these succinct statements, right? And and questions, theological questions. And and if you want one of these, Westminster Confession of Faith, just ask me, I'll give it to you, along with a Bible, right? Um, Free, whatever you want, uh, whatever you need right there, I can give that to you. But the first question, That's asked in the catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of humankind, right? And the answer to that question is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. One of the Latin themes that came out of the Protestant Reformation, like it was like a hashtag from the late to mid 1500s was this, soli deo gloria, only and everything for the glory of God, which which means that everything we are, right? Which this is what the Bible teaches, that, that everything we are and everything we do and don't do should and has the weight, proof and presence God in it. You see, you and your life, as soon as you were born, as soon as you were conceived, rather, were were, were to be devoted and done in obedience to God's divine design for your life. We all, the Bible is teaching, have a call to see God's pleasure as the final end in all that you do. Doing and being treated any less than that is missing the mark. Right? It's falling short of the calling God has given us. We call that sin. Which means your life should never be aimless. Even if you are unsure, even if some of you are unemployed right now, or or not doing what you have planned to do or be, even if your life is one big disappointment, right? Your life should always and can always have a devoted goal and directed and given to the will and way of, of the God who made you. And for some of us, made you his child through Jesus Christ. Hear me. Like the promises God made David back in chapter 7, you and how you live and and how David's lived between chapter 7 and verse 11 and going on, right? You and how you live are important. As one who is crowned, as as King David wrote in one of the Psalms, as as, as one who is crowned, that's every one of us, as a human being with the glory of God above all creations. Our lives have a constant design and aim and value and goal and purpose to them. And so when our passage today says this in verse 1. In the spring of the year. 
The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with, with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, Rabbah. But David remained in Israel. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Something is off. When we talk about a life devoted to the Lord, when you talk about someone who, who has a calling and, and, and is called to the glory of God in everything they do, something is off this passage is saying. The time of day. Getting off the couch in the, in the middle of the afternoon, walking around the middle, walking around while your country is in the middle of the war, you should read this like something is wrong with David. He ain't right. There's no pandemic. There's no Zoom by which he can kind of run the war from home. He is home sleeping in the middle of the day. King David is living aimlessly. The Bible is teaching us and showing us he is living in an undevoted life at this time. It has no God glory purpose. And it is the first time we're allowed to see him like this where he is neither glorifying God, actively serving, or seeking to glorify God, or putting his life in active position to do what God wants or, or like he wants to, to live his life to be out there in a way that God can get glory. He has lost value for himself somewhere in the plan of God and the things of God. God that he has set before David to do. You've heard the proverb about the idle hands being the devil's workshop. But you know that's, that, 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 that proverb is not about the idle hands. But what it's saying is an idle heart, right? An, an idle soul because sometimes you can be still, but if your heart is not filled with the right passion and passion for the Lord, even a busy day could be dangerous as well, right? Yes, From all the nuanced description we have here in this passage, David is exhausted. By exhausted, I, I mean he is tired. He is tired. In doing the things of God even. He is worn out by facing a war-torn, broken world every day. He got to get up, right? He's in a dog-eat-dog world, right? Y'all get it. You feel this all the time. You turn on the news. You turn on the media. This world with constant war had worn him out. Probably he lost some people. He saw plenty of folk die in, in, in battle, plenty of bloodshed. He, without a doubt, cut some corners, was ruthless at times. Maybe he was more brutal at times than, than he should have been. We, we know he was into the political nastiness of the day, taking multiple concubines and wives, using women, the powerless, as part of keeping and holding political power with other countries. His faith and fortitude were tired out. His work, his place, his space was no, obviously less, no longer and obviously less driven by a passion for God and more so by an arrogant, sinful desperation to fix and soothe what was empty and hungry and broken within himself. Drained. 
tired, exhausted. How you young people say it, David was thirsty. He was hungry. For what all the success he had couldn't fill. He was hollowed out like many of us by his personal sin and and maybe selfish desires in a fallen world that, that wouldn't let up. If you look at some of the Psalms and I went back, I looked at some of them that he wrote. He was dangerously desperate and hungry. I've heard people say things like, I'm hungry and I'm going to eat, right? You see it all the time on the the football field. I'm going to eat, right? These streets going to eat or I'm going to get mine. I've heard that. And these statements have been used as motivational mantras. But if we were to look behind them, they are more than, than not the result of human exhaustion at this life. Tired and fed up with their lives. Tired of being beat down. And the way they and others fail and fail them and just how hard things are. Warring all the time. Fighting all the time. Uh, and the, uh, of not feeling valuable. So they are stuck and forced to take matters into their own hands. And passion driven to, to, to fill their lost sense of worth and fear of being insignificant and missing out on life. They and we often then turn to selfish, self-centered greed, self-ways, self-feeding. And yes, we may eat and victimize the world. But like David does, it will leave us hungry and desperate for more. Why? It's like I started telling y'all at the beginning here. Because we have been created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Get it? Uh, for the exhaustion and emptiness and hardship within our hearts in this world. Hear this carefully now. We need not only live for the Lord and glorifying him. But in our tired, worn out faith and lives that are constantly messy and hard. We need to get life from the Lord. See, to glorify God and enjoy him to forever. It's not, it's not, it's, it's not just a, a, a one-way goal for us. Uh, David wasn't just supposed to work for the Lord in glorifying him. This is not why he went to war just, just, uh, and was the king, just to do something for God, just to perform from God. But even David in his own Psalms, this is what he expresses. As I go work for the Lord and get glory for God and do things for God, it is the place in the means by which God God fills me. Look at verse 2 again. It says here, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was beautiful. The time and occasion once again tell us that physically in the middle of the afternoon David Hungry. Woke up hungry, right? Most of us wake up hungry, right? And he looked or ready to do something, right? And he looked and saw intimacy, nakedness, innocence, passion, beauty in a woman named Bathsheba. 
But Bathsheba was, and what he saw, don't you understand? It was a mirage. It was a placebo. It was an empty calorie of the divine things the Lord promised and promises to fill him and us with. The Lord is promising beauty, y'all. Through the ways we enjoy him, he's promising a, 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 a glorious, glorious relationship in the things he, he promises to, to mitigate for our souls, souls. Unveiled intimacy, the Lord is promising us. Community, right? I need you to survive. We just sang it. Connection and beauty and feeling and purpose. It, God is promising us in our relationship with him to be the first order, be the first place where we get consummation for our souls. And our exhaustion and drive for value to just feel, right? Sometimes you just won't feel. You feel so disconnected and collapse. You just want to collapse into beauty and pleasure. And I have to ask, what are you eyeing and running and pursuing after? What is on the horizon? What placebo? What empty calorie? What, 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 what thing are you seeking to fix what is, what is so empty in you that only glorifying God and enjoying him in his purpose what will do for you? Maybe it is a romantic, insecure, sexual, and emotional, intimate connection. Maybe it's not just work, but how work has become what you seek to glorify and enjoy instead of a means to glorify and enjoy. Maybe it's all, and it's so hard right now, oh my gosh. Maybe it's all the available entertainments and media. You know, when I finish a show on, on Netflix or Hulu or, 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 or Amazon or Prime or whatever, I'm immediately thinking, what's next? Like, sometimes I got to line it up, right? When I'm on, like, it's just a season, the last season, the last episode, as soon as I get to the last season and episode, I'm thinking, I'm already researching what's my next show going to be. Like, I have to have it. And it has to be good. I give you 30 minutes. And I watch. If it ain't there, it ain't there. Next. But our entertainments and media and addictions to binging on TV. To just rise and fall from your couches, right? Maybe it's gaming. Or cleaning or ordering other people's lives or gossiping and talking about everyone else and, and shaping your body through exercise or being a foodie or on and on or sitting there moping and self-deprecating is your habit. All false ways of eating. All false ways of intimacy. All Again, there's the placebo for the human soul. I was talking to Amari and Josh this week around the fire pit and Amari said this as, as, as we begin, he was talking about as we begin to recognize that, that this church right and, and this church is filled with influencers man fantastic stories like you heard this morning from Bonnie Grigg right this church is amazing amazing stuff going on we have teachers and, and nonprofit folks and, and small business with a purpose, I would call it, people. And change agents who, who, who want to do their job differently to serve and change things. I mean, we are some, like, we, we are some busy people in the lives of other people in ways that we want it to have impact. 
But he asked, Amari, what are we feeding on? Because if the joy and glory of God is not filling you up, exhaustion, hunger, you'll be filled with anger. Man, I get angry. People get angry at, at, at folk if they're serving them, especially if you're a per, per, person of purpose trying to uh, uh, influence people's lives. Anger and pain and disappointment and that will destroy you and make you victimize the people and systems you work for. The people you advocate for begin to be the things you want to destroy and eat and consume and cannibalize. Even yourself, it is easy to become disappointed and tired and exhausted. This is the king of Israel. This is the dude who wrote most of the Psalms. This is the guy out there with the heart praising God. He is seeing God's victory and he has gotten to a place where he can't even get up out of bed. The White House, insurrection, whatever y'all want to call it, the domestic terrorist attacks, whatever. Hungry. Thirsty people. Just like you and me. Hungry and thirsty. But who have been filled with messages, eating on lies and passion that they truly think will mean freedom and stability and value. And it can as happen to any or all of us. Where we are actually destroying and in danger of destroying the things we are seeking to redeem. Because in our exhaustion and tiredness and understandable disappointment and wonder of what is God doing? We were supposed to win. Some of us believe this was supposed to be a win for God. I'm dis I'm tired. I'm tired of losing. I'm tired of feeling outnumbered. We're tired of losing here. No way. There's no way Georgia could have turned that way. Not Georgia. Some of us, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the media. The way we do media, y'all. I'm not blaming any particular group. It's how we use it. It's like when you go and you go online, you know what happens in here? I don't want y'all to be deceived about what you're doing. It's not entertainment when it's something passionate you're concerned about. You're going to war. Like your, your, your hearts and emotion are on the battlefield when you look at this stuff. And it's sort of like, let's go back. It's, you're in a fight. And what happens when you fight and war and run and your heart and your emotions are racing at a high energy level? You get tired. Because you know what? The goal of that stuff is to keep it going. Nobody wins. You know, it's funny. You can read any article and it'll never say, so-and-so was wrong. The end. Everybody go home. That ain't it. It is easy to become empty. Anybody to become empty. 
and filled with ungod-mitigated pleasure, beauty. I mean, David was pretty ambitious, wasn't he? So ambitious and driven is, that ain't good either. Who's that woman? That's her name. All right, go get her. Bring her over. Like ambition. Just ungod mitigated, right? Wrong, sinful. And ways where like David were sinning and, and even vacating, y'all. We will, on the couch, not going to war, not, not digging in, vacate as, as a husband and father and friend and neighbor and companion and then victimize and eat those around us. We will smother ourselves with emergency comfort. We as humans are so created to be filled and to worship, to find worth and filling outside of ourselves that in our sinfulness, we will break the proverbial glass for our loneliness and despair and playing out evil and broken intentions that play us deep within. If there's one thing true about human beings, I don't care who you are, you're going to eat <laughs> or you're going to starve. But God will not let us, did not call us to starve or exhaust ourselves or be tired to the point where we should, but then can't say no to sin. You know, this is a call for us to check our exhaustion. To check our boredom. Where is your disappointment? Where do you go check every minute? What gets your blood pressure up? What gets you going? I mean, and it could be something good, right? It could be something... Uh, uh, the, the trivial, like watching certain shows or, or going on certain news shows or, 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 or listen to that podcast. Sometimes you need to rest from the war and be filled with the Lord. Because the world is at our mercy. Look at the description of what happens here. So David's walking around and, 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 and it says he sees this woman who's very beautiful. And, and, and then in verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from uncleanliness. And, you know, this passage is saying, you know, she had her cycle, which means, guess what? If she got pregnant, it wasn't by somebody else at this point, okay? Couldn't be by somebody else, okay? Um, so it, it, it says here that um, then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. And then look at verse 14. Um, it says here that in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And basically, David set up a situation. I'm not going to read through this. Uh, David set up a situation. This, this is what he did, in short, because I don't have all the scriptures written down, is this. Um, hey, Uriah, come home and, and wash your feet. Okay. In other words, go home, here's some food, date night with the wife. Because the city gave him a present. That means, I'm get, I'm, you know, here's the meal, here's the flowers, here's the wine. Y'all have a nice night so that... You know, if she gets pregnant, it looked like the child's yours, okay? And then he wouldn't do it. He was too devoted. He was like, nope, not going to do it. Hanging around you, I'm going to guard your house. I'm not going to go home to my wife and have date night. And so it turns out, David says, okay, if that ain't going to work, I'm going to send a letter by your hand. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so interesting because he doesn't open it like, oh, 
right? He, he, he is so committed and he takes it to the general and the letter says, do a suicide mission and make sure your eyes on the front line and make sure Uriah, everybody falls, falls back and dedicated Uriah is probably not going to run dead, right? Bible says this in the last verses though, in verse 26 through 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, I don't know if you see what we should know about David and his off actions here. But God has put and called him into, to, to glorify God from a position of power and authority. This is important here, okay? Um, the, the Bible purposely says that he was on his roof. Not just his roof. Y'all see that? It says the king's, the roof of what? The king's house, right? He wasn't just on his roof. He was on the roof of the position God had put him in. Where he could look over things and look over the kingdom. David was called like us in various ways to spaces of power and authority. Where from our position, our God-given position, socially and vocationally and naturally and relationally or familiarly, right? To oversee and serve others. See, Bathsheba and Uriah in the kingdom were seeable and accessible to David because God put him there to oversee them and to watch them like a shepherd over God's sheep, to serve them with the privilege and power God had given him. Some commentary, commentators in the past have criticized Bathsheba for bathing outside naked, right? Don't even go down that road, right? She should have been safe bathing outside, possibly away from the house. Some people think because like the scripture says, she's going through a period of uncleanliness. And so she got to bathe after the time and, and she had to do so in a, in a location or whatever. But, but it, this is not saying this beautiful woman tried to tease somebody. Okay. Or, or went out there like a floozy. Get over that thought. Now we're going to come back to her story in part two of this sermon. We're going to look at the people, the, the victims of this story, right? So, so I'm concentrating on David now, right? She could bathe because David should have been at work. <laughs> See, she should be free to bathe where she did because he had, he should be working in, in position for her protection and safety. You see that? She could bathe because he's out on the battlefield, right, securing the borders. That she could and should feel safe because her husband was a trusted worker for David and the kingdom. This thing because, happened because David was out of place and purpose in his leadership and care as one in power and with someone who is less powerful or, let me say this, not even powerful, even submitted to his care. I will go deeper into the victim side of things in part two, right? But David used his position and place of power that the Lord had given him to fill and fulfill his exhaustion and sin. Tired of all the concubines he had. Tired and exhausted from what all that meant. He used his God-given ordained time and place and space for serving and overseeing to take advantage of others that should have been able to trust him. 
he know what it means that he went and sent for her and took her? He rapes her. This is a married woman. She couldn't say no. We'll get more of that next week. He has her husband who can't say no, be tricked to sleep with her so the pregnancy can be on him instead of David. And then hungry, remember? Then David puts Uriah where he was sure to be killed and then able to control society because of his privilege. He is free to fix it by marrying her. And this may feel like deja vu for some of you Bible knowledge people. But do you remember how Satan tempted Jesus when he was hungry? And thirsty, having fasted for 40 days, right? The Bible says he took him up and then showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Up in authority and power. Warning. In the ways we are up, up on or have an end or advantage over others. Maybe they have opened up their lives and emotions have become vulnerable to you. Maybe they work for you. Maybe they're your children. Or in some family context, maybe the the husband of someone, you're the husband of someone. Or in others in certain situations, the husband's on a roof, sometimes the wife's on a roof, and and you can see each other's weaknesses. You, You can see each other's struggles. And even worse, you can see each other's hungry hunger. You can see each other's nakedness. And some of you may be uh, children who see the weaknesses of their parents for the first time. And friends and friendships and relationships. Will you see those who hear me who are easy? Who are thirsty? Who are out there and letting you in and willing? God has placed and spaced you in a position of power and access and influence. Not for you to take advantage, but for you to take that seriously. And if you are empty or exhausted in your vowed relationships, in your work, in your value, if you don't think you are much or getting much, then you will automatically devalue others or put what they can give you on a pedestal. If you can see and have an entry point for your sin to manipulate it and then as, then as a leader or neighbor or just being emotionally and relationally more aware than they are, careful because you are on the rooftop. Think about toxic masculinity. I mean, the amount of times I've just heard like, oh, she sure is easy or she is thirsty or look at her, right? Look at what she's wearing. (laughs) It's a position of seeing. Don't you realize the position of seeing is a call to take responsible care for the person you see? Not advantage. Or think about some of the times what happens with gentrification, looking for the ignorant or desperate community to be exploited. Or vicarious correction and redemption through your children's lives being perfect. Or what we saw this week in the nation's capital from our president, seeing a hungry, disenfranchised, feeling people group who are easy to put on the front lines, to be shot for your issue. Right? To become fodder for your anger and emptiness and ungodly desires and your disappointments. Come on! We're going to walk down and I'm going to go with you. Uriah, go! The army's with you, but pull back at the end. Right? 
Real passion. This is the anatomy and workings of sin, y'all. And what can easily become institutionalized sin. Systematic sin. And it was already in place, and we're going to talk about more of that next week, with the way the women are so easily manipulated in this society. How and where has God put you in a position of power or emotional privilege or even spiritual privilege in someone else's life and, and you are using them and handling them and using what God has given to love them, to lure them and suck them dry? This is a call for us to take a serious look at relationships and situations, not only where people are under us and depend on us, but where people are vulnerable and made themselves vulnerable to us. If you see somebody else's weakness, you see it. And God has allowed you to see it for their good, for their survival. And maybe you're seeing it because you're not out of place. <laughs> so, I'm in with this final point here because God not only has called us to be devoted have a devoted life for and from him and to spaces of power to oversee and care for others, but he has called us to himself. So David orchestrates this coup of Bathsheba for his personal passion and gain, raping her, killing her husband, and then marrying her. But there's a rooftop higher than his, right? So he's in an earthly position to see all things, to get what he wants and execute them. But the Bible ends this chapter with this verse. Look at, look at it with me again. And when the morning was over, David sent, and it, you know, the morning's over, yep, he gone, funeral over, all the folk who got something to say gone home, right? David sent and brought her to his house. Brother was on, was on the home stretch, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Uh-oh. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God was watching over his kingdom, y'all. But unlike David, he is overseeing to care for it and the people in it. He ain't on the couch. And it tells us something profound. We are called by God himself, all people, but in particular his people, to be in relation with him even when we have broken it with him. And in this situation, it means this. God sees and keeps his eye on all of us. That he has a personal interest in our lives and the lives of people we are connected and associated with. The love of neighbor, regardless of, 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 of neighbor, is God's business because he is your God and your Lord. And how and what you do is his business. And it is seeing and knowing and he is feeling it. Let me tell you something. It's such an interesting passage. Such an interesting uh, sentence. Because you see, the Bible is saying God is not only aware Right? Like he sees the facts. The Bible said that God was displeased. Y'all see that? I looked up the Hebrew word for displeased. Yara is the word. And it means broken up. Grieved. Harmed. Crying. Saddened. Crazy enough, it does not mean mad or angry. 
God, because he is in perfect relationship, feels. God, the Bible is saying, feels hurt, not only at David, but for David. And we'll get the Bathsheba in your eye side next week. I'm not forgetting that. But just like David looked down for his pleasure on Bathsheba, I believe God, because it is in the scriptures, he saw David's abdication and shucking of his glory and not going to war. He saw David's exhaustion and emptiness and pride and how he expressed and used his power. He was not happy that David was tired and feeling worthless than what God had called him and started seeing his worth and, and fighting wars alone and that he was starving for attention and companionship and that he had burned out on being in power and failures and, and, and had become a greedy, hungry person. The Lord was displeased because it meant David and those he sinned against would be veiled, uh, um, self-removing, self-disqualifying, that they would be missing out on the richness of God's love and desire to have them enjoy him and him enjoy them and they the ability to enjoy and trust each other and themselves. He, he was sad that they were, won't be able to live energized and fueled by love and not hate and bitterness and abuse and self-rightness and drivenness. Sin is hated by God because God hates to be hurt by the brokenness and relationship with you. Do you know that? He hates the way sin makes it difficult for us to experience glorifying and enjoying him forever. God is displeased. He, he is hurt, right? He, he is crying. He is, he, he is disappointed in his, that his merciful and loving oversight and care for us, we don't feel. That get this in our exhaustion, in our tiredness, in our sick and tired of things, in our fears, in our laziness, in our feeling like we are not much, in our brazen passions for sex and power and money and attention and comfort. God is hurting for us. So here's the grace of the passage. God is not mad. He is broken. When we are broken. He is grieved. When we are sad. In fact he is sad. When we are mad. <laughs> he is broken. When we feel like we have to fix. Ourselves. And the way this ends. A displeased Lord. In power and with divine love. Is a God who will not. Reject us. But unlike David, he will go to war for our souls. See, Jesus came and was sent as a signal of God's displeasure of our sin. Of our emptiness, of our expressed lack of value and exhaustion and abuse. And on the cross, he took on the displeasure of God. And like Bathsheba, Jesus became a pawn. Submitting to the power of sin and sinful man. And like Uriah, God sent him to the front lines to be killed for our sins. So that when sinners come into relation with Jesus, it gives birth. Not to death, judgment, and condemnation. But between sinful man and the Savior, we get renewal and eternal life. For us, God should say no to this 
to this relationship, but because of his promises to those who are his in Christ, the Lord can't and won't say no to dealing with our sin and brokenness. You can turn to him. He's not mad. He's not angry with his children. Like the way we think of angry. He's displeased. That you're so hungry. And so empty. And so disappointed. That you would turn. And harm someone else. And yourself. To fill it. He wants. To pour his glory. In you. And on you. And enjoy you forever. Repent. Turn back. Don't try to fix it anymore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. We thank you that the ways we hurt ourselves, harm ourselves out of exhaustion, tiredness, and sin, and hurt others, hurt our families hurt our friends, hurt our relationships, victimize people in, under us or we can take advantage of us. Lord, please, please, please forgive us. We thank you that you're displeased with it, which means, Lord, you're going to do something about it. And you did something about it. You did not leave us. You did not forsake us. You didn't take a nap on your couch till mid-afternoon. You didn't see our vulnerability and take advantage of us. You didn't destroy us, Lord. You sought to redeem us through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for all the people in, in hearing of this message. To like Pastor Josh said earlier. To just fall, not on our couches, not on our man-weighed waves. But to fall into your arms. To rest, to be renewed, to be forgiven. And Lord, as we think about um, the Bathshebas and Uriahs in the passage, the servants who were forced to participate in this situation, Lord, prepare our hearts as we look at the word next week um, as those who can't say no, <laughs> who've been mistreated and relegated and done wrong in sinful situations that are more powerful than we are. Help us, Lord, to turn to you even in those. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.